God, we thank you for the reminder from those verses from Revelation that you are coming again. And Lord, we don't want to be a people who recoil in shame. No, we want to be confident. We want to be ready. So would you mobilize us today? Would you enable us to be fired up to pursue you with all that we have, that we might lead lives of purity and holiness in anticipation of your soon return? Lord, would you also mobilize us to proclaim your message to those who've yet to hear it? Lord, now as we open up your word, thank you for the clarity. Thank you for how you have communicated to us and you've put it in a book. Holy Spirit, be our teacher now. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. These verses from the last chapter of the Bible remind us Jesus is coming again. And the certainty of his return provides hope for believers that God is in control of all things. And he is faithful to his promises and he's faithful to his prophecies in his word. So in his first coming, Jesus came as the suffering servant. When he comes again, he'll come as the conquering king. And so for believers, his glorious appearing is our blessed hope. But to unbelievers, man, this will be a time of terrible lament that will usher in everlasting judgment. Our topic today is the promise of the Lord's return. And this message is going to serve as a pre-conference message to our living now in light of forever focus next weekend. So last weekend, Beth and I were up in Wisconsin. Can you see the halo around my head? Well, actually, we were up. <laughs> now that was good. I have one of those, actually. <laughs> we went up to Wisconsin to help Beth's parents winterize their home. And we had a very pleasant drive, especially after purchasing some squeaky cheese curds. So when we arrived in Sturgeon Bay, I saw a sign announcing a roundabout ahead. And I became immediately nervous. Now, if you're not aware of these diabolical disturbances, a, a roundabout is this circular intersection in which traffic moves around a central island in a counterclockwise fashion with entrances and exits everywhere branching in multiple directions. I grabbed the steering wheel and slowed down. As I entered this confusing maze, it felt like every vehicle was veering toward me. I didn't know what lane to use in this labyrinth of mayhem, so I just straddled the white line in the middle. <laughs> My heart was racing. I nearly hyperventilated. And as I was going around this circle, I missed my exit. I had to take a different route to our destination. Unfortunately, that involved another roundabout. So once I made it through the roundabout, Beth's sitting right next to me, she hears me finally take a breath when we exited this circle of death. 
<laughs> and she remarked, this is what she said, wow, you really get uptight in these roundabouts. <laughs> she said, I guess we'll never be able to move to Wisconsin. <laughs> and so I, I thought, you know, one way we could solve this is maybe they need to install stoplights there to make it easier <laughs> to navigate through these inventions. I just learned there's something called National Roundabout Week. It's coming up, end of the month. I'm going to take a pass. I won't be celebrating, even if they serve cheese curds. <laughs> you know, I'm certain we'll never move to Carmel, Indiana. Do you know in Carmel, Indiana, they have 140 roundabouts and counting. Now, I recognize some of you are roundabout lovers. Like, you're like, man, it saves mileage, it saves time. Yeah, I don't get it. You might be a lover, but I'm a hater. <laughs> See, I'd rather have a very clear path ahead of me than just drive around in circles trying to figure out where to go. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 14, because here we read where Jesus lays out a very direct path. He's looking at his stressed out followers, and he gives them four promises to hold on to, these same promises you and I can hold on today. Here's the backstory. Here's the context before we get to our text. Jesus has just announced, end of chapter 13, that he's going to be leaving them. And they're like, what? I mean, I thought we had a good thing going here. And they get all stirred up about that, and so Jesus then speaks into them. I'm going to invite you to stand if you're able. And in honor of God's word, let's read John 14, 1 through 6 together. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can be seated. Wonderful to hear God's word read out loud. Here's the main point. Because Jesus is faithful to his promises, you and I must be ready for his return. Let's look at the first promise, a promise of rest. The disciples are upset at this news, and so Jesus looks at them, would you notice, with tenderness, and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. That word troubled means to be stirred up. 21 years ago today, our country was stirred up, filled with anxiety, filled with fear. I also remember how churches were filled with people, at least for a few days. The tense here means to stop letting your hearts be troubled, indicating that these guys were falling apart. 
And the word your is plural as Jesus moves from talking just to Peter, end of chapter 13. Now he's talking to the whole team. This past Sunday night, uh, 60 Minutes did a segment. I only caught the first couple minutes of it, so I waited until it was released as a podcast and listened to the whole thing. It was on, and it was focused on this epidemic of anxiety in our country, along with increased mental health issues. The Surgeon General has called it an urgent public health crisis particularly among adolescents and teens. The CDC numbers show that even before the pandemic, the number of adolescents saying they felt persistently sad or hopeless was up 40% since 2009. Some of you today, just hearing me talk about that, you're like, I'm flat, I'm down, I'm depressed, I don't know how to get out of it, I'm thinking some bad, bad thoughts And so let me just say this as carefully as I can. I I recognize this is a very complicated issue. The solution involves a multifaceted approach. You can't just pray it away, and some of you have tried. But I do want to say this. Let's make sure hurting people know true peace is found first through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus offers his peace to those who give him first place. In the second half of verse 1, Jesus makes another claim to deity. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. He's saying something like this, you trust in God who is invisible, now it's time to trust in me, even though I'll be leaving you for a short time. Friend, mark this, the only way to find rest during restless times, and we're in restless times, is to trust in Christ. Number two, a promised reservation. For those of us who know Jesus, death is not this eerie journey to an unknown destination. No, believers are assured there is a place where all wrongs will be made right, all imbalances will be balanced, where confusing roads will be straightened out. (laughs) Look at verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? The Greek word for rooms means to abide, to remain. It refers to this permanent habitation. Friends, you do know this, don't you, that our place here won't last But if you have a room reservation through the new birth, you're headed to a place which is everlasting. The word prepare is the idea of making a place ready. That's what Jesus is doing now. It was also used of someone opening their home for hospitality by preparing this huge banquet. Oh, that's how the word's used in Matthew 22, 4. See, I have prepared my dinner My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. If it's just me who needs to hear it again, it's beneficial, but my guess is you need the reminder too. We often think this is the land of the living, and then when we die, we go to the land of the dead but we have it all backwards. 
This right here is the land of the dying. And when our life here is over, we're transferred to the land of the living, either to a place of eternal joy or to a place of eternal torment. There are only two possible destinations. So when Jesus said he was going ahead to prepare a place for them, he's drawing on a very familiar image. So they didn't, did you know they didn't have cell phones back then? (laughs) They couldn't make a reservation, no GPS, none of that. So what they would do is they would send someone on ahead if a group was traveling to get everything ready so that when the group arrived, it would be ready for them. Uh, That happened on the night of the Last Supper. Remember, Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead, and he said, get the room ready, get everything ready for the Passover. It's interesting how Jesus has prepared a room for us even though there was no room for him when he was born. Jesus said there's a reserved place of rest for those who received him, and he left his disciples to get the place ready for them and for us. Notice next, and here's where we're going to focus, a promised return. Jesus calms his frantic followers, verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I'll take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Would you note, look at verse two. He's repeating the same truth from verse two about how he's going to prepare a place for them. He's saying something like this. I'm not just gonna show you the way to the place. I'm not gonna just give you a map. No, I promise to come back and take you to that prepared place so that we can be together forever and then you'll finally be home. This literally reads, I come again, or I will return back. His coming is meant to serve as a comfort to the disciples. The one who said, I go, is the same one who said, I will come back again. Oh, don't miss how personal and tender this is. And I will take you to, what's the next word? myself. The focus shifts from a place to a person. The idea here is that Jesus brings or takes us into his own possession. Jesus himself will come again to personally take us to himself, that where I am you may be also. Oh, interesting, the word you, again, here is plural, meaning those of us who are born again will have a glorious reunion with those who've gone before us, and there in heaven, we'll have a reunion with the Lord and with the Lord's people. Now, an understanding of first century Jewish wedding customs can help us appreciate this promise of the Lord's return. You see, ancient weddings were not uniformly celebrated the same way in every community. There's some differences, so it's a little bit hard to to nail it down. But recent scholarship combined with archaeology suggests some fascinating wedding customs from Galilee, which is 
where Jesus grew up and where he spent a lot of his time teaching. Now, it's good to be reminded the first miracle Jesus performed was at a what? Wedding. And where was it? In Cana. Where's Cana? Right, Galilee up in the north. So in addition, Jesus relied on the ancient wedding customs in much of his teaching. Let me just suggest too, the parable of the wedding feast, Matthew 22, parable of the 10 virgins with their lamps, Matthew 25. So it makes sense the promise of his return would have some parallels, especially in the minds of the disciples as they're hearing Jesus teach on that with ancient Galilean wedding practices. Let me suggest a few. First of all, the betrothal. So normally the prospective bridegroom would take the initiative and he'd negotiate the dowry price to pay the bride's family. From that point, she was known as one who was bought with a price, distinguishing her as an engaged woman. According to 1 Corinthians 7.23, we too have been bought with a price. We've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Once the groom paid the purchase price, the marriage covenant was publicly acknowledged at the main gate of the village, though the couple did not live together and they maintained their purity. Next, a cup of wine was shared. As a symbol of their covenant and of the promise, the groom was now willing to die for his bride. The groom would pour wine in a cup. He'd take a sip and offer it to her. If she accepted his proposal, she would drink from the cup, and the groom would say these words, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in my father's house. Well, that sounds a lot like what Jesus said, right? In Matthew 26, 29, at the end of the Last Supper, the disciples would have immediately recognized this imagery of a marriage proposal. Next, the groom would return to his father's house, and he'd he'd return and be there about 12 months. During that time, the bride and groom were separated. He worked at constructing an attached addition to his father's house where he would live with his new bride. Now that ties into what we just read in verses two and three about Jesus leaving to prepare a room for us. What would the bride do? Well, the bride would spend this time preparing her white dress and keeping herself ready with oil in her lamp. Next, the groom's father would decide when the wedding would take place. Only the father knew when the wedding would take place. And here's why I think he didn't know, because the wedding receptions lasted seven days. <laughs> so he's probably like, I got to get some more shekels here. I got to prepare for this. He's also watching his son construct the addition, putting a room onto the house. When the father says everything's ready, he makes In announcement, this announcement by the father to the son was often made in the middle of the night. Matthew 24, 36. So then the groom would travel to his bride's house. And as the son went to retrieve his bride, shofars, trumpets would be blown by the father, lamps would be lit, and when the bride bride expected the groom's arrival, but listen, she never knew when, 
he was coming. She had to always be ready. Matthew 25, 6, friends, likewise, you and I cannot, must not fall asleep spiritually. We must stay pure and prepared because Jesus could appear at any moment. Next, the groom's arrival was announced with a shout. (laughs) Oh, that makes me think of 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So there were bridesmaids as well. Bridesmaids were to be alert and prepared. According to Matthew 25, in the parable of the 10 bridesmaids, all the women get up, but only five have enough oil. Half are ready, half are left behind. Next, the groom would pick up his bride and take her to his father's house. Some commentators suggest the bride was literally lifted in the air and escorted to her new home. It makes us think of the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we'll always be with the Lord. So after the wedding, the reception lasted seven days, but Listen to these chilling words from Matthew chapter 25 directed to the women who had to run to Walmart to get more oil for their lamps. Okay, it's, we don't know where they went, but we do know they're like panicky. First, they say to the women who had oil, hey, can we have some of yours? Those five said, uh-uh. So they, they start scrambling. Well, listen, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, these are chilling words, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Friend, once the door was shut, No one else was allowed in. So let's receive the promise of his rest. Let's focus on having the right reservation. Let's remember his promise to return. And finally, let's make sure, make sure today that you're in a right relationship with him. Verses four and four through six, a promised relationship. Look at verse four. Jesus says to them, and you know the way to where I am going. And I pictured the disciples like, what? We don't know the way to where you're going, Jesus. And so Thomas speaks up for the rest of the timid team. And Thomas gets a bad rap, doesn't he? But he had the courage to put into words what everyone was thinking. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas gets a bad rap for doubting, but I see him as one who was willing to dialogue about his doubts. And so if you have doubts today, welcome. Jesus can handle all of your questions. In verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. There is no other plan but the person of Jesus. There is no way to get to heaven unless we go through him. You cannot get there in a roundabout way. Now, Jesus is very inclusive in the sense that everyone is invited to a relationship with him. John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But mark this, his claims are extremely exclusive, meaning there's no other way to heaven except through him. Now, how does this mesh in a pluralistic society like ours that values variety and excludes these exclusive truth claims? Are you aware that Christianity still dominates by sheer numbers, but the United States has a greater diversity of religious groups than any country in recorded history? There are today more Muslims in America than there are Methodists. Now, it's helpful to remember the world of the biblical authors was filled with paganism and pluralism as well. So amid all that doctrinal diversity, the Bible makes some rather startling claims that run countercultural to the pluralistic mantra of religious tolerance. This week, I was deeply saddened to read a brand new study. Sometimes I wish these studies would stop coming out because this one had a bullseye on pastors. It's the 2022 American Worldview Inventory. According to this study, over a third of senior pastors believe good people can earn their way to heaven. Almost four out of 10 evangelical pastors surveyed said there's no absolute moral truth and to quote, each individual must determine their own truth. George Barna concluded that a loss of biblical belief is prevalent among pastors in all denominational groupings. And I'm gonna be quick to say, the gospel preaching pastors that I know, I mean, they're preaching the gospel. They believe the Bible is inspired, inerrant, and they're preaching with passion and conviction. But church, it's critical that we get this right. See, we can lament what's happening in pastors and in other churches, but we, oh, let me personalize, you need to get this right. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's do a deeper dive because this is so important. When Jesus used the phrase, I am, people in their minds would have gone back to Exodus chapter 3, 14. When God described who he was, I am who I am, Yahweh, Jehovah. 
Listen, Jesus claimed to be God, a claim no other religious leader has made, not Muhammad, not Buddha or Confucius. No one else did the miracles he did. No one else lived a sinless life like he did or died like he did as our substitute, and no one rose again on the third day. Notice how this verse begins. Begins with the word, I. In fact, 11 times in just six verses, Jesus uses the personal pronouns, I, me, or my. We are not saved by a principle or by a force. We're saved by a person. Jesus did not say he knew the way, the truth, and the life, or even that he taught these great principles. He declared himself to be the embodiment of the way, the truth, and the life. Now, while answering all of life's questions, Jesus doesn't offer a recipe like, hey, try this and see how it turns out for you. He also doesn't offer a bunch of rules that we try to keep. He's also not suggesting a number of rituals that we go through. No, instead, he gives us a relationship with himself. You see, his plan is wrapped up in his person. Would you observe next, Jesus didn't say, I am a way, a truth, a life. What does he say? I am the way, that is the only way. I am the truth, that is the only truth. And I am the life, that is the only life. Now, let's keep going. This is so important. All three concepts are active and dynamic. What I mean by that is the way brings us to God. The truth makes us free, and life produces relationship. Let me say it like this. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. And without the life, there is no growing. Oh, would you observe in the context the phrase, the way predominates? Do you see it there? It's used three times. Three times, the way. Jesus is saying, I am the way that reveals the truth about God and gives life to those who believe. Or more literally, I am the way because I am the truth and the life. And finally, there is only one avenue to salvation. With Christ removed, there is no redemptive truth, there is no everlasting life, and there is no other way to the Father. Now, other religions offer systems of thought that try to bridge the gap between man and God, but Jesus is the only one who succeeded in bridging that divide. Now, it's so important that you settle this. Because listen, if you stand on this truth, you are gonna swim against the current in our culture, big time. I mean, think of what our students go through now. Man. So settle this. Jesus is the only way. If you don't settle it, you'll cave, you'll compromise. Now, I can think a couple ways we can put this powerful passage into practice. Number one, tell others about Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to make Jesus more palatable to people. 
No, our job is to tell others about him without watering down the way to heaven. Tell people Jesus came and tell people that he's coming again. Many years ago, Beth and I gave the first book in the Left Behind series to my youngest sister. Her name is also Beth. A few days after giving it to her, I connected with her on the phone, and she told me she hated the book. And I said, well, why? She goes, it just made me so mad. I was reading it, and I threw it across the room. I'm not reading that anymore. And so I said, well, Beth, what's, what's going on? What's going on inside? She kind of hesitated, and she said, well, the reason I whipped it across the room is because I realized that if Jesus came back right now, I'd be left behind. And that led her to confess her faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So question, what about you? No, I'm, I'm like really serious. Like, what about you? If Jesus would come back right now before our service is over, would you be left behind? See, the truth that Jesus is the only way should make us bold, but it should also break us. So we need to hold this tough truth, but it should tenderize us. It should put tears in our eyes about the fate of those who are lost and who will be left behind if they don't repent and receive Christ. Second application, place your faith in Jesus because he is the only way. Look again at the last part of verse six. No one comes to the Father except through me. That little word except means apart from Jesus, there is no way to be saved. You can't get there by trusting in yourself. You cannot get to the Father by jumping through some holy hoops. The only way to come is to go through Jesus, who is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Oh, go back to verse 1. Jesus says, believe in me. That word believe is an imperative. Yeah, I didn't do good in English class either. What's an imperative? Well, it's, it's a command. It's a command to believe. To believe means to lean on, to rely in, and to fully trust. Jesus is the only way that must be followed. He is the truth that must be believed. He's the life that must be believed. I think back to Thomas. Let's circle back to him with all of his questions when his questions were answered, he confessed Christ boldly. Do you remember what he said? My Lord and my God. Have you done that? After Queen Elizabeth of England died this week at the age of 96, I came across something she once said in a conversation with a chaplain. Oh, how I wish that the Lord would come in my lifetime. The chaplain asked, well, why? To which the queen replied with quivering lips and her whole countenance lit up by deep emotion, I should so love to lay my crown at his feet. And we go, wow, that's incredible. You go, queen. Well, let me personalize it for you. 
Have you laid yourself at Jesus' feet? Or are you still acting like you're king or queen of your own life? Are you just leading your life like you want to? Jesus is preparing a place for you and he's coming again. And are you ready to come to him and lay everything to his feet before he does? Listen, I had to just tell you, to warn you, you don't want to be left behind and face judgment and read the book of Revelation. But not only that, and then spend eternity in a hot place called hell. Because Jesus is faithful to his promises, you and I must be ready for his return. Let's circle back, last chapter of the book of Revelation. Listen to this tender yet urgent invitation from Christ himself. The spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take, notice, the free gift of the water of life. You know, being stuck on that roundabout this past week brought to my mind an experience I had with Megan, our youngest daughter, when we first moved here like nine years ago. We'd only been here like a week. Uh, Beth was with her family um, for a family celebration in the Chicago area. So it was just Megan and I home on a Saturday, and we were both kind of down. We were both kind of bored. Uh, Megan had moved here, left all of her friends, didn't know many people. I'm like, man, I'm in this new church. Are, are they going to like us? Am I going to like them? <laughs> it, it was just kind of an unsettled time. So it was just Megan and I by ourselves. And I knew I had to get her out of the house. So I said, Megan, let's go for a drive. She said, I don't want to go for a drive. I said, well, let's go. She goes, where are we going? I said, I don't know. I'm too new here. So we just jumped in the car and started driving. We drove east on the avenue of the cities. And as we're driving, Megan's just not really having it. She's just not in the best mood. And so while we're driving, I see a pawn shop up ahead and I pull into the parking lot and Megan's like, Dad, what are we doing? I said, well, Megan, I, I think you're getting older. We just need to kind of figure out how these pawn shops work. And she's like, I don't want to go in there. I said, Megan, let's go. She's like, Dad, these are shady. So we went inside this pawn shop. I looked around and I said, Megan, let's get out of here. It's shady. <laughs> we kept driving east and I found this museum right next to the river. We pull in and Megan's like, Dad, I don't want to go in a museum. Those are boring. I'm like, come on, Megan. There's got to be something in here that we can enjoy. So we go in to the museum. We get in there. We look around. I said, Megan, let's get out of here. This is boring. <laughs> we keep driving. And some of you can picture where we end up. We end up at this apple orchard. And now we're eating popcorn. And we got some candied apples. And, well, that was fun, and then we decided to head back, and we had one final destination, which was a blast. We both got autumn chippers at Whitey's. <laughs> but here's the deal. Since we didn't have a plan, we weren't sure of our destination. It's so easy in life to just start driving with no idea where we're headed. 
And without a plan, we end up in some shady places, right? Other times we're like, man, this is boring. And we try to find something fun so we're not bored. And once in a while we find something fun and every now and then something exhilarating. And so our experiences are are either exciting or excruciating, but listen, we're not really going anywhere. So if you're going to take a trip, you better have a plan, you better be ready, and you need to have a sense of where you're going. Otherwise, you're just stuck on a roundabout. God, I want to pray for that individual now engaged online or right here in this room who honestly would need to admit that they are not ready to meet you. Lord, I pray that they would meet you right now through the new birth as you invite that individual to come and to take the free gift. Lord, may they repent of their sin, turn from how they've been living, and cry out to you and say, Jesus, save me from my sins. Thank you that you died on the cross in my, be- in my place as my substitute. I ask you now to save me from my sins. Thank you, Jesus, that you were raised from the dead on the third day. I need your resurrection power in my life. And Lord, help me now to live for you and you alone because you alone are the way, the truth, and the life. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.